Welcome to the latest episode of Global Class, a podcast where we explore the international expansion stories of the world's fastest growing companies and the career journeys of their globally minded leaders. My name is Klaus Vihe, and I'm here with my co-host, Aaron McDaniel. Thanks, Klaus. In this episode, we're excited to welcome Antoine Colasso, managing partner of Valor Capital Group, a cross-border venture investment firm. Antoine was an early employee at Google and helped build one of the company's first international offices then going on to global leadership roles overseeing Latin America, Asia, and global business development. Prior, Antoine had roles at Yahoo and Goldman Sachs. In our conversation, Antoine shares the story of Google's early expansion, building teams in India, about the importance of relationships and internal alignment in expansion success, how international cannot be a side project but must be core to the whole company, and how the walls are crumbling that prevented company leaders from seeing global opportunity. Well, Antoine, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to speak with you. You uh, have such an awesome career that goes from building companies to now helping other companies scale and build as an investor. And I guess just jumping right in, would love to hear a little bit about your experience between then and now as you've built an international career and why you've landed as an investor and, and maybe going back to any formative experiences you had that showed you there was a world beyond your backyard. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on the book to both of you. And uh, my international career, I think, probably started at a very early age because I came from an international family. So my father is Indian. My mother's French. Grew up in Washington, D.C. after being born in France. Every year growing up, I would be, uh, you would either go to India every other year or France every year. And, you know, the cultural aspects of that were very important to me. The nice thing about being able to go to India was on the way we could stop somewhere every year or so, because it's halfway around the world from DC. So we'd stop in different places, right? So, you know, got to travel to a number of different countries, got to see a number of different cultures, was in China in the mid 80s, for example, when things were very different from they are now. Saw India change as well, you know, places in the Middle East, places in Europe, Africa, etc. My father was at the World Bank, which made it very international community that we had in Washington. My mother was at the IMF. So, so both those, all of that was very important to me growing up gave me a very international kind of flavor to my background and did instill in me kind of the want to work not only domestically, but internationally in the long run and view that as very important for me. So my path to where I am now, though, was circuitous, I would say, to be simple about it. But I mean, you know, I was started off as a mechanical and aerospace engineer and public international affairs undergraduate and then went into healthcare consulting, of all things. But, you know, at the time in the mid 90s, that was healthcare was becoming more managed care, so had much more business aspect to it. So it was a time of change, and you could really see kind of the business aspects being applied there. And then I actually went to Singapore to do project finance, so to do lending for you know large power plants and things like that. Unfortunately, as I landed, the Asian currency crisis was hitting. So literally sitting next to the currency desk at the bank that I was working, a local Singaporean bank where I was working, you could see the the rupiah dropping by the second, basically. So learned a lot about what not to do. So matching of currency is very important. So when you when you lend money in dollars and all the revenue is coming in another currency, it doesn't always work when that currency gets battered. Came back to business school and then from there moved to uh, Silicon Valley to join Goldman to do tech banking. And for those of you who remember 2000, 2000 was not a great year for tech banking. So uh, hit another downturn. From there, went over to Yahoo to do business development. And after a year and a half there, was told by a friend that there was an interesting opportunity, like a small company called Google. So met with Sheryl Sandberg, who convinced me to join. Her advice to me at that point was, you want to join a company that's a rocket ship because you'll get all sorts of experiences that you'll never know where they'll go. And that was the advice that Eric Schmidt had given her. 
And she was absolutely right. I spent nine years at Google and most of my time was ended up being in international operations. Six months into my role, I was proposing to Larry, Eric, and Sergey that we open up an operation in India. Eric turns to me and says, does that mean you're going to do it? When you've been at the company less than six months, you don't say no to the CEO. And so I ended up moving to India and being on the initial team, setting up that operation halfway around the world, which learned a lot of things from both positives and negatives, and then did the same thing in, in multiple countries afterwards, Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, and then helped a team in Israel and Eastern Europe. And then you know, most of my career was then in Asia and Latin America. And then 10 years ago, was called up by a friend, was the husband of somebody I'd worked with Google and said, you know, we're thinking about starting up a venture firm focused on Brazil. Do you want to join us? And after very many months of discussions and thinking about it, I decided to take the leap and have been doing that ever since. That's awesome. There are a lot of different places we could go. I think one in particular, just going back to your experience, maybe with Google and with India in particular, at that time... It was more of a setting up a team there, right? As opposed to formally launching in the market, or was it also about in the market there too? Yeah, it was more setting up a team. So we were supporting our advertisers from around the world. We had to approve the ads, for example, right? They got put on our site. So it was setting up another operation to help do that at the time. Eventually, we did open up a sales organization there. In parallel, an engineering team in Bangalore, we were setting up our operations in Hyderabad. So yes, it was, but you know, we still had to create the entities, be able to hire people. And also, Google had very specific standards on how to hire people. And so we had to educate people back in headquarters on what were the right degrees, what were the right universities, what did this mean? Because there's a lot of sensitivity around hiring and the quality of people. And so, and then we also had to make sure that what we were doing was legal. There are different laws in different markets, right? So what our pornography laws in the US may be different from India, and they definitely were. And just a few months earlier, you know, the head of eBay in India had been arrested for because there was something on the eBay site, which skirted those laws too. So, you know, we had to get opinions from the judiciary people there and so on. So there's a lot of things that we had to figure out along the way, which was while you're not setting up a sales organization, you're still setting up an operation that has to be in line with the regulations of the country, put it that way. Let's talk about that a little bit more. I We could almost think of it as three different levels, right? Maybe on the lightest level you hear is especially consumer companies that have like an app, they're like, oh, we're in 120 countries or something Mm -hmm. like that. And that's just because they were in an app store and have a user. That's like the thinnest level Mm -hmm. of entering the market. And then there's like actually building a team and and wanting to plug into the talent pool there. And then there's building a presence and actually selling. Can you Mm -hmm. talk about maybe some of the similarities and differences between those three levels and how people should think about it? I mean, even from Google's perspective, like Google was able to launch in hundreds of countries very quickly because again, it's a website. And if you localize it, we use local translators in those areas where we didn't have local people who spoke the language to translate the very, the website itself is very simple. If you think about it as a search engine, right? It's just the front page. And then you obviously have to have the translate, you have to be able to translate the results and so on. But so Google could launch very quickly in market, in new markets and in that kind of that first level that you're mentioning. And we did. We launched in hundreds of countries, et cetera, or hundreds of countries and territories, et cetera, very quickly in local language. What that does is it tells you also how many users you have in a market, how active the market is, and so on. So it's almost a precursor to telling you when it makes sense to enter a market. Now, what we did in India was is a little bit different than a lot of other markets because then we entered with a presence, but not necessarily focused on the Indian market necessarily to begin with. Soon after we did launch the aspect of our business, which was focused on the Indian market. I think the first level gave you a sense of activity in the market and how much it made sense. You can marry that with then, you know, ad penetration and online ad penetration and things like that. And sometimes you 
didn't have to have necessarily all the online ad penetration because by Google going there, it grew that market, you know, from offline to online in some ways. But so the first step was getting kind of the data, the first data pieces to understand, does this market make sense for us as a business, right? And from there, then you can decide how to expand. And frankly, I think the most important thing is also, what is it that you're expanding? What parts of your business are you expanding? It's not going to be everything, right? In a lot of cases, you know, a lot of our product focus was still based in California, Mountain View, where we build products that were for a global basis. And I think that was, you know, there are positives and negatives to that, obviously, and happy to go into that. But when you're doing a sales team, you can have a much lighter entry strategy. You have a sales organization, et cetera. You do have to have certain things that matter, you know, your tax IDs, your how are you going to invoice local companies, which also is goes to how are you structuring your business? What are the entities of your own company that exist? Which ones are going to invoice customers in different countries? Oftentimes, customers will want a local invoice for their business rather than an invoice internationally for various tax reasons and so on. And so, you know, I think thinking through all those things are very important as you go to the next, the other two layers that you mentioned. Maybe another thing, and this is, this is really for any situation, but we've heard stories about India in particular, just about differences in business culture. I mean, you could use other examples of Japan and otherwise, but how you manage an organization and how do you balance between what is company culture and Google has a very distinct culture versus what's typical in that market. What did you experience and how did you find that right way to balance between the two? So I think there are cultural differences on many levels. Internally, one thing that happened in India, which didn't happen in, I don't think, many other countries was, for example, when, when you're hiring new people out of college, you know, they would bring their families to the office when they were making their final decision because they, their parents wanted to be involved, right? And wanted to see that this was a real operation and, you know, we're just starting out. What is this? Is this really Google? You know, is this a real legitimate operation, et cetera? And family is very important. I know that from my own family. And so you'd have a lot of family members actually coming to the office with the kind of candidates to see if this was the right opportunity for them, right? The other thing you have to think about is India, and we've seen this in Brazil too, at the time, the traditional jobs that people wanted to get were consulting, banking, and, and civil service, right? Civil service was basically lifetime employment and so on. And that was considered a very good job, right? So this idea of getting a tech job of getting options, not well understood at the time, right? And so there was this aspect of having to educate, you know, new employees around that and understand the value of it and why it made sense to them as well. It was something that we very much fought for, for our initial team in in India. You know, it was the idea of, oh, options don't matter, so we shouldn't give it to them. But, you know, again, you want to create a global culture. And so if there are certain things that are part of our culture where everyone gets options, people in India should get them too. Employees in India should get them as well. And so I think that was very important. And I actually think made a huge difference to our employees you know, over time. The early employees really did well because this was actually, we were starting this prior to the IPO of Google. So it actually made a big difference to them in the long term. The other thing that's important about from a cultural perspective is also externally. So one of the things was, you know, I was there to, and the team was, we were there to really set up our operations. But there are a lot of other things that go around that. There's HR, there is facilities, there's other things that go around that, right? And you know, when you're 12 and a half or 13 and a half hour time difference from California, it's very hard to have calls. Zoom was not in existence at that point. It's very hard for people to have calls with the time zone difference, right? You're either someone who is either in, in their night or early morning and to have those calls, which we did. I mean, we were on calls at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning with California and so on. But generally, people didn't want to do that in either market. And what you realize is also that 
personal relationships matter in a lot of countries, right? India being one, Brazil being another. So just sending an email to somebody out of the blue who you haven't met is really not going to get you anything, is not going to get things done. We ended up having to do a lot of that work, be it HR, be it facilities, et cetera, because we were there on the ground and could meet these people in person. It wasn't our core job, but if things needed to move forward, we had to do it. And so, but I think understanding that relationship aspect is very important is also something that is critical as you're launching a business or an operation in a market like that. I feel like we're getting a a ton of knowledge and wealth of information here thrown at us. I want to go back to the stuff you talked about a little bit earlier about the parents. Take us into that room where you have to educate them on tech jobs, options, et cetera. <laughs> Do you actually have to have these real conversations with the parents? Already? Yeah, yeah. Take us into that room and how you actually convince them to get a job at Google in India. Part of it was, you know, because when we were started, we were like in a, in a temporary space. You know, when we were starting the business up, the way I reflect on our time at Google in India was we were really a startup in India with the financial backing and the brand of, of Google. But in the early days, frankly, we actually didn't have our entity set up and we weren't hiring people directly. We were hiring through through an employment service, basically, right? So again, we had to convince them that, yes, we are setting up an entity. We are here long-term. This is going to be, this is part of Google. Google is this big company that has a track record, et cetera. We had to explain what options were. We had to explain what the value of potential options were. You know, you can't guarantee anything, obviously. You can't make any promises, but here are scenarios as to what options could be worth if prices of, you know, and we had no idea what the price of Google was going to be on the public markets, right? But, you know, you could do different scenarios and different price points and so on for the stock. So we had to have these conversations with the employees. We have to have these conversations with their parents at times when they walked in the office and weren't always expecting their parents to be there. But as you know, with any startup, you have to be flexible. You have to take what you get and run with it. So those were the conversations we had to have and be ready to have the conversations with them. We heard many similar stories also with Sendesk when they were expanding into Singapore in sort of the earlier days where the ecosystem were developing. Obviously, it hasn't been as developed 10 years back. And also Sendesk had to educate employees and potential prospects of joining the company in terms of the benefit of joining the organization and obviously what entrepreneurship and technology is. So, so we've heard a lot about that in the previous conversation that we have with other interviewees. You talked a little bit more about the communication between the headquarter and local teams and building what we call feedback loops within the organization. How did you sort of meet people halfway in India? Obviously, the time differences, et cetera. And also, what were some of the specific structures that you guys built to ensure that there were these feedback loops between local teams at the headquarter at Google? I don't think we did a good job of it at the beginning, to be honest with you. I think part of the problem and a learning that I had was having only been at the company, you know, less than six months when I first started this, I did not have those personal connections within the company already. If you think about it, I was hired to actually start an analytics group within Google, very much focused within our online sales and operations world, as it was called at the time. I did not have those relationships with facilities or HR or so on. So I was counting on people within my organization to then pass that along to the people in those roles. I quickly developed them over time. But I think that was part of the problem was not having those direct relationships and contacts with those people. The other thing I think was a mistake was not having those people come out day 10, whatever it was, you know, in the first month of being out there, they should have been out there early on, which was a mistake looking back on it. After that, it got much easier because once you build that trust internally, then you can have those lines of communication to say, if I raise my hand and I say, this is really serious, they will understand that I am not kind of crying wolf unnecessarily. There are times when, you know, you get a, this will tell you how long this was, but we got a fax literally saying that, you know, if we didn't pay a certain bill, we could lose our license or something like that. There are things like that, which again, you have to have those 
those abilities to communicate back with headquarters and that trust to say, if I'm going to raise my hand and I'm saying that this is urgent, you need to know that's urgent and you need to act on it immediately for us. Because this is, and the other thing is you have to have the buy-in at the highest levels, right? That this is, this is not just something that is a side project, but it is a core piece to what we're doing. And when we need to jump, all of us need to jump, depend, regardless of what department we're in, right? I think that's critical as well. Because otherwise, you've got your local team banging their heads against the wall, trying to say that things are important. Headquarters says, you know, I've got 20 other things on my plate. You're, you're going to have to wait. And then things just fall, unravel and fall apart, right? You are hitting on a lot of the topics we talk about in the book. But one thing in particular you talked about is what we call sort of the bridge between local knowledge and company knowledge. We build this team building framework where you say that you didn't have that local knowledge, local business experience, local language skills, but at the same time, also not having that company knowledge built yet. So I guess from more the local knowledge perspective, how did you get the insights to the Indian market? Did you pair yourself up with an executive there? Or what were some of the things that you did to actually gain, obviously, the India experience and understanding how things work at a local level? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I had personally, I had a lot of knowledge of the Indian market just from having gone there personally, right? Ah, over over the years, true. right? But I never worked there. So there's a difference between working and kind of having family and seeing family, right? But I at least had a cultural knowledge to a certain extent, which was very important, I believe. On the working side, you know, I think we got very lucky. We actually, in the early days, you know, we literally were scouring around for headhunters to figure out how to hire people. And we were using Google to get names of local headhunters and went and interviewed them and so on. And one of our local headhunters was very, very knowledgeable and helpful. And she was kind of a guide for us in a lot of ways on different things to look out for, how to think about hiring people. And then over time, kind of gathered that network and the local network. You knock on enough doors, meet enough people that one person leads to another, leads to another. And you have to kind of get your knowledge that way. I think it's much easier now, frankly, because I think these things have been done much more. And so tapping into someone who's done it before and tapping into their network. And their guidance can be done much more easily now, whether it be it lawyers, be it accountants, be it headhunters, whatever it is that you need help with. I think there are networks of people who have done this, who have seen companies expand geographically much more. So I think there's a lot more resources than there were when we were doing this at the time. But I do think it's important to really figure out answers to the questions you know, but also figure out the questions you don't know that you should be aware of, right? Because those are the ones that always get you in the end. We also put that under the guise of what we call often overlooked elements of things. And so, yeah, obviously asking the right questions are, are huge. So besides India, you also had a great purview into the rest of Asia Pac, Latin America, you know, a lot of different growths of Google. And I think probably far enough removed from it in looking back, and it's enough of a success story that we all know what Google is, but I'm sure there were mistakes made along the way. And, and generally from our research, we found that a lot of people, and, and part of why we wrote our book as a playbook is because people kind of made it up as they went along. What were some of the mistakes that you saw from your experience, whether that be even today with companies that you work with as an investor or what you saw at Google? What are some mistakes made that you saw some pitfalls to avoid to not have as many things that are overlooked? The one I mentioned was the biggest one. I think making sure that you have internal the people that you send to a market to start a market need to have those internal relationships within the company to make them successful. Without that, it really becomes difficult. The other piece is, I think, having the internal alignment to say, to get all the groups aligned to the effort that's going to be made to launch a new market is critical because otherwise, I think it's just not going to be successful. If people's goals are not aligned, 
it will not be successful. And those were mistakes that I made in the first time. So I, you know, after India, I then used what I learned and did the same thing in Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, et cetera. Yeah. And really had learned those lessons very clearly to make sure that I wasn't going to make the same mistake twice. I think the other thing is also, I think you had it on your page, Klaus, when you were showing the from your book, but I think you have to have that grit and really being stubborn internally also is critical. Like it's not only being stubborn externally and getting things done, it's internal and saying, look, this is not working for me and I need this fixed. If it's not going to get fixed, then travel back to headquarters, get the people in a room and get it fixed. Like one of the problems we had when we were launching Brazil, for example, was there's a payment option called Boleto. Boleto is like, you essentially say you're going to pay something, you get a slip, you take it to the bank and pay it, right? It doesn't exist really anywhere else in the world. And Google product was all about creating products for millions of people around the world. And so the argument was, why should we create this payment option in Brazil for one market? So the argument back is, because all small and medium businesses use Boleto as a payment option at the time. And if you want to have a business, you need to let them pay you. It is that simple. And so, but again, it did not go with the mindset, which made Google very successful in many other ways, which was, we're going to make products that are usable across many geographies, et cetera. It doesn't need to scale. But again, you have to literally be in the room, pounding on the table saying, this has to happen. Otherwise, we're not going to be successful. And we as an organization and a company need to be successful here. I think that stubbornness goes internally and externally in some ways. And again, something I learned, I was not stubborn enough internally. You know, I was, didn't want to crack too many eggs early on in your career in a company. And I think that that's what I would have done differently in, in India, for example. I think you bring up a really interesting point that we saw in our research too, where companies that are very successful in getting scale in an initial market, but organic growth in other markets, they often, it's either because they have a universal value proposition or universal applicability of their product, but they kind of fall into this. So we have a localization premium analysis chart, a spider chart, and the top elements are go-to-market related, the bottom are operational. And there's different flavors. Like some companies are just like, well, it changed the language and the pricing and marketing message and we're good. And others might be like, okay. And, and I think we saw a little bit of this, like with an example would be like Uber. There's kind of this universal value proposition that everyone sort of hates taxis or needs places to go. So, but you can't rest just on that. Or Google has an amazing search experience that's great. But to your point, all of that stuff under the surface, all of those operational things to actually, you can sell someone on something, but you need to collect the money. You need to fit into local regulation and all of those things. So, just uh, exactly. reminded us of that. One thing that you brought up multiple times in some of your answers is the importance of trust and relationship building. And that dovetails well into what we label as the four commitments that companies who are to be successful in growing internationally must commit to, hopefully from the beginning or through pain and suffering eventually get to. One of them is around resource alignment. And that's you know not just we're going to give you money, but over a sustained period, because I'm sure that your growth in all of these markets wasn't just a six-month thing and then it took off. You know, It took some time. But part of what was core to what you were talking about falls into one of the others, which we call autonomy and trust. And part of it is, is giving the right amount of autonomy at the right time to allow that team to uncover what localizations are needed for that market. And to the point of what you've been talking about before based on relationships is that trust between the local team and headquarters to allow for that to happen and also to give resources so that that local team 
can focus on traction in the market, not figuring out how we got to make this change at headquarters. I guess in that context, how do you build that trust with leadership? You had to do that the hard way because, like you said, you didn't have a you know longstanding trust built when you went to India. Practically, how do you do that? Yeah, look, I think that's why you know ever since I think even with the companies that you know I'm on the board of and as they're looking to international expansion, I think as a VC, I, I highly encourage them to send people from headquarters who have been there for some time, who understand the operations, send that as the landing team. So one example was Jim Pass did a great job of this, right? They expanded to Mexico. They sent one of their founders to Mexico to be the first person on the ground there with, and start that up. Then the other, you know, the CEO moved to Europe when they were opening up European operations and then moved to New York when they were opening up the US. So having a very seasoned person from your organization who understands how the organization works, understands who the people are in the organization, who has the trust of the organization already set as part of the landing team is very, very important. Now, that person also has to have the sensitivities to the local market, right? I mean, I think we talked about that before, but having that sensitivity to what local market is, understanding that what you're going to do in one market and your original market may not be exactly what you do in the second market or third market, and having that flexibility to change is critical as well. So I think you need to find the right person who can do that. So the person who's been there at the company understands it very well, understands the ethos of the company very, very well, but is also flexible enough to understand how that is then modified as necessary with local market. And then after you set up the original piece, then you hire the people to replace you, basically. You hire the local employees who will then take that over from you. And the last piece is those first hires in the market are critical. They're like hiring your first people in your company all over again. They are the people who are going to continue the culture, who are going to continue, who are going to be your presence in that market. And they need to be as strong as your first hires were in your initial market. Not to get too much into the details, but one thing that we found, we'll kind of talk about the progression of expansions in different markets, is there are certain big milestones that exist, and it'll depend a little bit on each company, but that really represent a big shift as the company grows toward global maturity. One of them, what we found is it's not scientific, but you know, somewhere around once 30 to 40% of the revenue starts coming from international markets, that's when there's a bit of a turn where all of a sudden, leadership is like, okay, we kind of get it. We saw the opportunity. We're capturing it. Let's do more. But the other thing that we found, and this was later on in our research, but we thought it was interesting, was the decoupling of headquarters and the initial market. So as you're expanding, most for most companies, the head of the company in that function is the head of that whole function for the company, but mainly in charge of the initial market where the company was launched. So that headquarters market is treated differently than the other markets. It's like, here's the main market and here's all the satellites. Mm -hmm. But a big change is when all of a sudden the head of America is you know, a GM, just like the head of EMEA, just like Asia Pac or however we divide things. Talk about that stage of growth. And do you see that as a milestone? Are there other milestones? But you know, maybe just that process of decoupling and what goes on there. I definitely think that that is a major milestone. If you're a US company and then you have a head of the Americas and then other heads of the regions. I would step back. One of the things you mentioned was when international becomes 30%. Even within that bucket of international, I have an issue of, around calling it international, frankly, because I do think that there's a very big difference between Europe and Asia and Latin America, for example. And at Google, for example, we had a very strong European business early on, but the rest of the world was not as developed. So that's the reason that when 
our region where I were, you know, early days was Asia and Latin America were all grouped into one. And the reason for that at the time was that the Asian and Latin American markets, as far as internet penetration and maturity, were around the same level. But also internally, if either of them had been separate, they would not have gotten the attention they needed compared to the US and Europe. That's why we had to group them together to get a critical mass. Eventually, we split them out and Latin America became part of the Americas. Asia became its own thing. I spent a lot of time working in Japan and kind of bringing Japan into the fold because Japan had been its own for a while. So even within kind of this quote unquote international bucket, I think it's important to segment out what do you mean by international? What are the areas? What are the group, you know, uh, areas within that? And so I do think that that's critical. So, you know, for us at Google, it was, you know, the US, it was Europe and Europe had kind of the emerging parts of Europe as well, Middle East and Africa, things like that. And then you had Asia and Latin America were all one thing. And then we had split them out eventually, you know, the Americas were all one, Asia was its own because it was big enough. So I think that's important to make sure also when you're thinking about international, it's not monolithic, right? I think it's very different. You may need to be very specific about how you deal with that. But I do think, back to your point, I do think that it is important once the CEO of the company starts not thinking about, I'm the CEO of our America business, core business, and there's some other stuff on the side, but I'm the CEO of the entire business. America's one part, which may be a big part, but there are these other parts which are growing and are important. I think that is a very big mindset. And I think it's incumbent on the CEO to be open to that. Because if you're going to open up international markets, you want to get to that point. Right? You want those other markets to be a significant part of your revenue. Otherwise, why are you doing it? And you have to be able to think more broadly. And one of the difficulties you have is that you have built those relationships with all those people in your headquarters, and they have your ear. Well, how do you open up your ear to the other people who have been at the company shorter time are not in the same office space, although... Future of work is a whole nother conversation on how many people are in the office anyways. But you know, in the past, it's been people who are around you more focused on your home market than they were on other markets. And so how do you keep that same ear open for people who are not necessarily physically close to you? I want to shift the gears a little bit here, Antoine, and talk a little bit more about structures and processes you can establish and create when you want to support that scale. And in our book, we have created a framework called the Localization Resource Team which is basically a structure, a cross-functional team that supports localization and local teams that want to scale and expand into new markets. And I want to understand a little bit more about that journey with Google in terms of how things scaled in terms of structures and processes. What were some of the initial things that you guys created internally at Google to support your expansion into India and other markets? And how did that sort of transition over time as well? Aside from obviously just having these like very specific relationships you had internally, but how did you actually craft and build structures to support that scale? If we're with India, I don't think we had that. I don't think we thought through it and had those. Over time, we did develop them. I think we did develop kind of teams that were focused on the on kind of emerging market initiatives. So within product, for example, we had a team that ended up being very focused on being the advocates for our markets within the overall product organization, shall we say. And we had even had an overtime engineering teams in these markets and so on, some of whom were, were focused on local markets. Again, we were functionally organized as Google. So we had engineering globally, we had product globally, you know, we had sales globally, et cetera. So I think it depends on what the organization structure is in some ways, right? Because sometimes companies will have a true GM for a market, which who is responsible for everything within that market, right? And then, then it's a different kind of need or as far as what you create within headquarters to help your new markets. I think you have to have a champion in headquarters who is really going to be the ears for the local team to make sure that they're, you know, what they need is being heard locally, regardless of what relationships you've already built. 
I think that person needs to have the relationships and it should be not only that person, but they should have a cross-functional team that exists in headquarters that can work together to hear these issues and concerns and make sure they're addressed properly and timely. We've heard a lot of examples that, for example, Flexport, the guy that led the Europe expansion, Jan Van Kasteren, I'm butchering his name right now, he had a strong relationship with the COO of the company that previously worked at BCG, I believe, right? So they had these very, very tight relationships that then helped enable him to get the right type of resources and support from the headquarters. I want to move over to maybe bringing a little bit more on the investor head on here, Antoine. And you obviously invest in companies in Brazil and are sort of having a little bit more of what we call a cross-border VC, if you will. I'm curious to get your opinion in terms of just broadly, what do you feel like VCs are lacking in terms of supporting companies as they scale internationally? Because what we've seen a little bit in terms of Silicon Valley VCs, they're not very focused on having deep support in supporting that journey. Now, we have seen some indicators, though, of some VCs starting to hire people that are you know, supposed to build up that muscle. As an example, we saw Andreessen Horowitz about two months ago, I believe, or three months ago, that launched an expansion partner role mm-hmm. at the firm. And so what are VC currently lacking a little bit in terms of supporting? And do you see things changing moving forward as we're moving a little bit more into a distributed world and companies will build and operate a little bit differently? The cross-border aspect has been a very core part of our fund since the inception. It is what we have built our careers on, all of us who you know, started, the, started the business. And we think it is critical in the long... We've always thought it's critical in the long term. We think that you know, it's essential that businesses will grow across borders. There are some companies that will stay within their home market, and that's fine, right? But I think that the nature of business is one where you're going to see solutions that are going to be applicable, especially in technology. They're applicable to multiple countries and geographies. So we've always thought that this was critical. I think, you know, and we and we started with by investing in Brazil and, and then some of our investments are outside of Brazil where we helped them enter the Brazilian market. We've now expanded throughout Latin America to do the same sort of thing. And we think that this takes this is along several different aspects. So one being obviously there's capital. So early on in, in when we started this decade ago. There was not a lot of foreign capital coming into the Brazilian market. It then came and then it left when there was kind of an economic crisis. And so being that bridge to follow on rounds, especially at the time, Series B rounds were very difficult to do. There wasn't enough capital in Brazil and trying to get foreign investors was difficult. So we had to be that bridge. And I think that was very critical to helping our companies be successful. But then you see that it's not only that. There is also the aspect of human capital, which is critical as well. So be it hiring people, but also bringing expertise that may not be in the local market to the local market. You know, people always said, oh, engineering talent in Brazil is going to be the biggest deficit you're going to face. I actually don't think that's true. I actually think where you find it is product management, because I see product management as a skill that you pick up by learning from other people who have done it very well in the past, right? It's almost like an apprenticeship sort of role. And when you're in a nascent market, you haven't had generations of people who have done it for you to learn from. And so that's where you're seeing the the gap. And so bringing that experience from a market like the US or Europe or where have you, where you've seen it, where it's been done numerous times, understanding how metrics-based, how to create your dashboards that really run your business and help you run your business, all of that, I think, is something that's critical. And so those are the kinds of things that we think was important to bring also to these companies. And then obviously, there's the experience of how do you then take a business and take it to another market and think about the potential pitfalls, the potential opportunities, et cetera. 
and having that in a way that you can be structured and helpful. I think part of that is by having those relationships in those markets, right? Having the relationships in, if there's a Brazilian company that wants to go to Mexico, having those relationships in Mexico, having those relationships in the US, et cetera, as they expand. I think those are critical things as well as experience of having seen it done and that network that we do. One of the important things I think we do also is we have a community group within Valor and where our entrepreneurs can learn from each other, but also learn from experts in, in fields that we bring to our entrepreneurs to have kind of regular chat sessions with. And one of the most demanded ones recently was, how do I expand my business to Mexico for a lot of Brazilian entrepreneurs? And they wanted to have experience around that. So we kind of brought some experts around that to help them, right? You're talking to someone who the very ethos of what we've been doing for years has been cross-border, right? And so that's core to us. When you talk about other firms, look, in the US, you have a lot of venture firms and there's such a large market in the US that for many, many years, it has not been needed, right? You've got a big enough market that these companies can be can grow to be large businesses within the US. I mean, I think we've been pleasantly surprised that there all are also a lot of companies that because of the internet, the way the internet works, you can get customers around the world without even trying sometimes, right? And so we've had companies come to us and say numerous times, we have a lot of users in Brazil. We have no idea why, because all we do is in English and we haven't reached out to them, right? But we have all these users, right? And so we've actually been able to enter deals and get into rounds that we typically wouldn't have been able to because of the Brazilian market and the interest in the Brazilian market. And we believe that we had a lot of value because of our connections and our network there, right? And so I do think it is something that you'll see more and more. I mean, we even heard for long periods of time, the Brazilians were scared to go to Mexico. It was a different language. It was a different market, et cetera. Yes, there are differences, but the markets fundamentally, there are a lot of commonalities that make sense. You know, we have a company that we've invested in. Their first market was Nigeria. And their second one was, we brought them to Brazil because they're in financial services. And there's a lot of aspects of the financial services industry that are very similar. They're similar size populations, things like that, right? So this whole aspect of being scared about taking companies abroad, I think is those walls are kind of crumbling over time. That being said, I think it has to be done intelligently. You need to do it. You need to plan how you're going to do it. You need to think about how you're going to do it. You don't just show up and everything's going to be the same as it was before. But I do hope that these walls around kind of, you know, I can't go to another market. I mean, if you think about Israel is the best example of this, they've had to start thinking globally from day one because their market, their home market is so small. And so they've always had this mindset. And so I think that that mindset is now starting to get into other markets around the world. I appreciate how you just said that too. It's probably nuanced for most people, but what we hear more often than not is people saying, we are going to be born global as a company. And we don't think that that's accurate. You need to have an initial market where you validate your business and prove. But to exactly what you said, thinking global day one, and when you do that, and that's one big delineation we made. And that's why we don't use the word home market in our content, because depending on where you're from, your home market may or may not be your initial market. And Correct. if you're from Israel, if you're from Klaus from Denmark, you go elsewhere often to get that market. So more of a question around Brazil, just with experience with Valor. Brazil is a huge market. You know, one of the simplistic ways companies think of things is let's go to the biggest market, which is why you see companies want to go from US to China and often fail because you know there are just so many, so many big obstacles in between. But what are some things that companies who are thinking about Brazil should consider? You know, some stories we heard are, you know, more around just the practical or operational things around just the difficulty getting money in and out of the country. We had a great case study from Apple when they were building a retail presence there. They had to, because of tariffs, 
change some of their model and hire and train differently. But what are some things to think about for any company leader who's looking at the Brazilian market? Yeah, I mean, the first things are, you know, there are a lot of labor laws, tax laws that have to be looked at very, very carefully when you're entering a market because it can make a large impact on on your bottom line, frankly. So I do think understanding the nuances of your model and on the tax side, it's very, very complicated. So having the right advisors to advise you on tax and legal issues are very important because the way you classify yourself and your revenue could impact your tax bill dramatically. And so it's very important to get that right. Understanding the labor laws, how to hire people, what you're, you know, what it means to let go of people, et cetera, is very important as well. And how you incorporate yourself is also critical from day one. Beyond that, I think it's very important to, to really understand the nuances of the Brazilian market and how your product fits into the Brazilian market. What regulatory headwinds or tailwinds exist in market for what you're trying to do? Is this any different than any other market? That you, know, you need to understand that, I think, for every market. But there are nuances in every market, and I think Brazil is not immune to that. You can see that certain things are very important. And of course, understanding what the competitive landscape is, why it's set up that way. So, you know, for example, in Brazil for a long time, the financial services market was run by an oligopoly of four or five banks. Uh, and that was kind of set up through a regulatory system that existed in that way. That was changed several years ago. And that allowed, that's why you're seeing this proliferation of so many new fintech companies is because the regulatory environment changed. So timing of some of these things can be very important for as you enter a market as well, right? So 10 years ago, as a fintech company, you may not have wanted to enter Brazil. It may be a completely different situation and depending on what your model is, right? So I think understanding those aspects are very, very important. And again, that's where I think we add a lot of value to companies who are entering the market because we have so many, you know, we have so many relations with large companies, but also kind of understand the government aspects of it as well. You know, having had our senior partner, Cliff Sobel, starting, you know, being former U.S. ambassador to Brazil and having those relationships, I think is very important as well. Just to understand which way the regulatory winds are going. One thing you had previously mentioned was about walls crumbling down and certain things that have, are enabling global scale to happen more swiftly than in the past. And we were talking a little bit about headquarters as well. One of the things that we found about companies that fit into this category of global class and, and where we see companies going is, is this different view on what headquarters is. Not being a command and control mechanism telling everyone what to do, but being more of an enabler and supporter of the different localizations in different markets. Do you agree with that? What role do you see headquarters playing in an effective global organization in the scaling and I guess at scale as well? Look, I think there's a balance. I think headquarters has to set the direction for the overall company, no matter what, right? That's the role of, of the CEO. That's the role of the senior leadership team. They have to set the direction. After that, they need to enable the teams to be successful in achieving those, out, those directives that they've given them. So I think it is a balance. I think there is a certain amount that has to be directed from headquarters. But I do think that once that decision is made, and if, those, if there are multiple markets that are involved that they're expecting results from, they have to be able to give the resources and the support to allow that success to happen. And if they shouldn't be hindering that success at the very least, right? And I think it's also incumbent on them that if things are not going to plan, understanding why that is and making the tough decisions on changes, which could be people changes, like maybe they have the wrong leader in a certain market. We had to do that in certain times. It's not easy. It's better to make that decision swiftly than letting something kind of linger on and then either create a bad reputation for yourself in that market 
or you have a team that is demoralized in a local market that is very hard to kind of re-motivate. Antoine, I want to say thank you for being with us on today's call. And so we're going to move into the last segment of today's conversation, which is the three pieces of advice. And imagine you're coming down from the elevator. You only have a couple of minutes to answer these three key questions in a very abbreviated format. Are you ready for those questions? I hope so. Let's we'll see. Let's go. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see, right? There's a lot of money on the line here. Exactly. Um, what one piece of advice would you give to someone interested in building a career around international business? First, I would say absolutely do it. International business, quote unquote, is business. So I think it makes all the sense in the world. Do it. Be very clear about what you're trying to accomplish. And when you're going, quote unquote, international, outside, whatever your market is right now, be sure to really understand what that market is. Spend the time to understand what that market is and what it will take to be successful in that market. What one piece of advice do you have for a business leader expanding a business to new markets? I think it's the second thing that I mentioned there. I think really understand that market, understand what headwinds, tailwinds you have in that market, how you're going to be unique in that market, what it takes to be successful, and also just reach out to people in the market and get the best knowledge before you even go. There are many, many networks to get information from now, and I would tap into that as much as possible. The final question before we, Aaron, will do a beautiful wrap up here and, and a bow tie on, on today's call here. What one piece of advice would you have for your younger self? Wow. I think just taking the educated risks in your career and taking those leaps. As you know, I definitely did not have the path that I thought or maybe thought I would have when I was younger, but taking those leaps of faith into things that seem interesting and, and learning from them. Fundamentally, I think you learn anything. You want to take on roles where you're going to learn something. And your career is not one step. It's multiple steps. And along the way, you want to learn something each step. So as long as you're opening up an opportunity to learn something new, I think that's a good step in your career. From aerospace engineers to Google exec to now venture <laughs> capitalist, right? A lot of changes. Exactly, exactly. A straight line path, as you can tell. <laughs> Antoine, thank you so much for these insights. I mean, you, you talked about how it's important to really decide what you're expanding and helping to decide what's centralized versus localized, how relationships really matter internally and across organizations the importance of aligned goals and how expanding to new markets can't be just a side project, but must be core that the whole group you know, agrees to jump on. To be stubborn internally, not just externally in the market. The importance of a seasoned team member being part of the local presence and a champion at headquarters. Insights about the Brazilian market and some thoughts on walls crumbling and, and the importance of the HQ balancing to facilitate success in local markets and educated risk in building a global career. So Thanks for some really awesome insights and, and all you're doing to build global businesses. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the time. <laughs>